Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. You know, our mission, as I've said in previous episodes, Our mission at Keystone Elder Law is to shield the middle class from the costs and the challenges of getting older. And you build that shield in a number of ways. You know, your financial arrangements are going to be part of it. Your legal estate planning is another crucial part of building that shield. That's where we come in at Keystone Elder Law. But we don't just draft a power of attorney or a health care power of attorney, a will or a trust, and call it a day. We want to start with your health concerns. We want to know about your financial arrangements. We definitely want to know about your family, the dynamics of the family, and what are your goals. And learning about the whole picture of this planning is the first step for you in building the shield to protect against predictable threats and to achieve your goals. So if you go to keystoneelderlaw.com, you'll find a workshops tab If you click on that, you can get registered for an upcoming workshop. I do them about once a week on estate planning, asset protection, understanding levels of care in the later years of life and how you pay for them. You can listen to previous episodes of this show. If you go to whp580.com, there's a menu in the upper left-hand corner. Under the podcast menu, you'll find the Later in Life uh, Later in Life Planning Show. You'll also find the show on any podcast player out there, iHeart, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest. But today, we are going to go deep into one part of this planning, one part of building your shield, which is not just protecting against predictable threats, but planning for transitions in your life and making them go more smoothly. When I am helping someone to draft the healthcare power of attorney, we're talking about medical decision-making in the event that you are no longer able to speak with your doctor. So saying yes or no to treatment, if you can't say yes or no, if you can't weigh the options, and if all the doctors conclude that their treatments are unlikely to extend your remaining life in any significant way, you have the opportunity not only to name someone you trust to make life quality of life decisions for you, but then take the step further and say, what kind of quality of life do you want? What kind of medical treatment do you want? But there's another part of it. What about when you're gone? There is an opportunity in this legal planning and in other ways you can accomplish it as well to give life to other people. And what am I talking about? Organ and tissue donation. So in Pennsylvania, this, this was a major focus of, of a legislative change about six or seven years ago that the law was updated. The vehicle for those changes was a piece of legislation by my boss at the time, State Senator Stork Greenleaf, who was a tireless, I mean tireless, advocate for older Pennsylvanians. And during the process of drafting that legislation on the health care power of attorney and living will, it really was all about facilitating organ and tissue donation. Make it easier for those who want to donate and to get educated about what donation involves. And there were many interested parties at the table. I mean, even if there's a criminal investigation going on, the district attorneys and the coroners wanted to be a part of it. There were various faith-based organizations. And, of course, there were agencies that actually take on the the task of procuring organs and tissue for life-saving transplants. 
One of those organizations is called Gift of Life. Gift of Life handles all of the organ procurement in the middle and eastern part of Pennsylvania. You can find the Gift of Life organ donation program online at donors1.org. That's D-O-N-O-R-S, the number one, dot org. Joining me, joining me today from Gift of Life is Dwendy Johnson. Dwendy, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having us. And we can talk about what Gift of Life did in 2022, the 1,700 and some organs transplanted from 690 donors. We can talk about the nearly 2,000 corneas that were donated through Gift of Life in 2022. We can talk about the legal planning to become a donor. But the true story of organ and tissue donation is really about the, the real human beings, both the individual and the family behind the donation and the real human beings involved with receiving life-saving donations. So I am very, very excited today to welcome Cheryl Eschenauer, who is a resident of Hershey. And Cheryl's going to talk about the experience her family had involving organ donation about 26 years ago. Cheryl, thank you for being here on the Later in Life Planning Show. I appreciate very much you giving me the opportunity to be here to share our story so that not only you, but other individuals understand the impact that organ and tissue donation has had on my family. And I think that's the only way people really do understand it. You know, we, as I said, we can talk about facts and figures, but you don't really get it until you've been through it or heard from somebody who's been through it. And that's where you come in. And, and let's start right there. Tell me about what was happening 26 years ago. Okay. So 26 years ago, on a warm July evening, two of my three sons went for um, a normal early evening bike ride. These were boys who um, frequently rode their bike. They were not boys who um, rode in areas that their father and I did not approve of. They both had helmets on their heads. We knew the exact route that they would be going. They had a cell phone, never thinking that we would need it for a situation like this, but We thought that perhaps if they would pop a tire or pop their chain, they would be able to call home and just say that they had, they needed help. So about 20 minutes after they left home, the phone rang and I answered it. And it was my one son, pretty hysterical, telling me that there had been an accident and that his brother was hurt. I envisioned that he perhaps would have a broken leg or a broken arm. And I asked my son, where are you? And he gave me a rough idea where they were located. So my husband had gotten in his vehicle and went the way the boys would have been coming home. I went the way the boys left our house. We both came upon the accident at about the same time. And when we came upon that accident, we could tell that it was very severe. My husband happened to follow the ambulance and the advanced life support unit to the accident scene. And I came upon the accident right after the emergency personnel arrived. Um, Fortunately, there were several nurses that were driving past the accident scene before the emergency personnel arrived, so they were able to assist and help my son, Jonathan, who was the one that was involved in the accident until the ambulance staff arrived. So Jonathan was taken to Hershey Medical Center. Our family was escorted to the medical center, and Jonathan was placed into a trauma room. And for a period of about four hours, we knew very little about what was going on. We knew that it was very serious. Um, There was a doctor that was coming out periodically and updating my husband and I on what was happening to him. 
And after about a four-hour period of time, a physician came out and indicated that although Jonathan had received broken bones as a result of the accident, the most serious injury that he had occurred was an internal closed head injury. We were told at that time that he was going to be taken to the pediatric intensive care unit, that there would be a lot of monitors on him, and that he would be watched very closely throughout the night, and we were permitted to be at his side around the clock. So when we eventually were able to go to the pediatric intensive care unit, um, there were a lot of pieces of equipment and machinery on him. Jonathan was not conscious. And the doctors and the nurses were very calm with my husband and with myself. And they explained anything and everything to us. Any questions we had, they answered those questions for us. It was rather apparent to my husband and I that there was no response from Jonathan. And he was on a ventilator. He was on other pieces of equipment. But to look at him, you could not tell what was going on inside his head. He looked like he was sleeping. He had some bruises. He did have a broken leg. His leg was in traction. But to look at him, he just looked like he was sleeping. And it was rather difficult to try to understand what was happening internally in his head. And um, medical staff was explaining to us um, the brain and how the brain was jarred around during the accident. And we were able to be at his bedside the entire night. We were able to see the tests that were being performed on him. And we were able to see, quite honestly, the total lack of response from him. So it was in the morning that medical um, individuals came to my husband and I, and they had indicated that Jonathan was going to be receiving several more tests. But based on the test that had been performed on him throughout the night, um, the indication was that he probably was going to be declared brain dead. And we were asked if we had ever considered organ and tissue donation. To be honest with you, we never did. And I think a lot of that was based on the fact that we were a pretty happy, healthy family unit and never thought that we would be impacted by that decision. Yeah. And who does think about it, really, unless they're doing estate planning, unless they have a, an actual family incident? And let's pick it up when we come back from a break there, because you're being asked to go from a grievous loss to a giving mode in, in a span of a very short amount of time. Let's talk about that in a bit. You're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm Patrick Cauley. I'm your host. And today we're focusing on the giving of life through organ and tissue donation. And before the break, Cheryl Eschenauer, my guest, was talking about that situation where you tragically uh, got the call that your son had been in a in a, a bad accident while out on his bike. You sat at his bedside um, and saw that he was not responding to any of the tests they were doing. You were able to stay there through the night at the hospital and at this point, I mean, he's hooked up to machines and so forth. He's he's still alive, right? When they when they approached you and talked about organ and tissue donation, technically he was alive because the machines were keeping his organs and his blood flow. Um, had he not been 
attached to the machines and had he not been on a ventilator um he would have been he would not have been alive he would have been dead okay so how did the conversation then come up when they approach you you've just experienced a terrible uh sense of loss if they're talking to you about this that you understand that that um that medical treatment doesn't seem to be able to bring him back so now you're going into the mode of are you willing to go into giving mode how does that conversation go especially in such a short amount of time well, my husband and I were asked if we had ever considered organ or tissue donation and if we had ever had that conversation as a family, and we had not. So we agreed to meet with someone from the Gift of Life donor program, and that individual explained organ and tissue donation to us in detail, answered any question that we had, and never once gave us the impression that our questions were not important. That individual took a lot of time because we had a lot of questions. He was 12 years old. I had a lot of questions. My husband had a lot of questions. So we did not feel forced. We did not feel pressured. We were told it was our decision and whatever the decision was for us was the right decision. There was no right or wrong. It was our decision. My husband and I, and then at the time our two other sons were with us, we went back to Jonathan's bedside. And as difficult as it was, quite honestly, knowing that there was no chance of survival for Jonathan, our family felt that perhaps Jonathan could help other individuals actually lead a better life if they had the opportunity to have their organ that they needed transplanted into them. So as a family unit, we made the decision that we agreed to donate his vital organs and we signed the forms and the documents. My husband and I stayed at the hospital, stayed at his bedside until the process was completed as far as locating recipients and where they would be. That's a long period of time. Wendy can speak on that, but it's a long period of time from the time you sign the consent form until time of surgery. We stayed with him, and when he was being taken for surgery, we walked with him at the head of his bed to the operating room. Um, he was taken into one operating room. My husband and I went into a waiting room because we weren't going to leave until we knew that the surgical procedures were completed and that not only were recipients located for his organs, but that um, the organs were either flown or transported out of Hershey to the hospital where the um, transplants would occur. And, Dwendy, at this point, you know, from the, the standpoint of the Gift of Life donor program, I would imagine that there's intense conversations going on with other people who will be possible recipients, that they're filling out forms, that they're, I mean, so does everything track, I mean, with with what you're aiming to do? I mean, just the fact it must warm your heart to hear that the people representing Gift of Life comforted this family going through probably the most unimaginable time in their life. You know, most families, that's their worst nightmare, but they were felt, they, they, they felt educated. They did not feel pressured. I mean... So so on that end and as well on the, the end of, of wherever the recipients are, is this is this what Gift of Life is doing? We are. We're supporting our donor families at the time of the decision is being made. And we also um, go through with any type of testing that may be developed to see what matches are determined for a recipient that's out there. So we work very closely with the United Network for Organ Sharing. Um, to help solidify and coordinate that that um, those organs where they can be matched and and who they are. 
And do you have, does Gift of Life have personnel who are essentially on call to be at the hospital at any time of day or night? Because I, my impression was this was, you were there, uh, Cheryl, around the clock. I mean, maybe time completely slipped away from you, but I mean, are they just there just in case this could happen in a very sh- on short notice? Well, just keeping in mind that the hospital is doing everything possible to help save that person's life. And when those are all exhausted, then organ donation is an op- could be an opportunity. And that's when the hospital calls Gift of Life donor program or an organ procurement agency in their area. And then, um, then a transplant coordinator or a person or personnel is going to go out to the, the hospital at that time. So regardless of what time it is of day, we are helping to support that family. Got it. And Cheryl, back to you. I mean, so you you were there, you and your husband were there until the surgery was completed. You knew that the organs were on their way to recipients whose lives would be extended and enhanced by by those gifts. Um, I understand that if we were to, and, and say as much more about that as you'd like, but I understand that the story didn't end there for you, that you do you know, I was going to ask, do you know how many recipients there are? But I know you've kept it in touch with it, at least one. So talk to me about, about that. Sure. So five of Jonathan's organs were determined to be suitable for transplant. Um, we had hoped to be able to donate his lungs, but they were injured at the time of the accident. So they were not um, able to be transplanted. His heart was transplanted, um, both of his kidneys, his liver, and his pancreas. At the time, we were given very brief information. We knew that his heart had been flown to Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, and we were told was being transplanted as we spoke. Um, One kidney and pancreas, we weren't told at the time, but we found out later was actually staying at Hershey and being transplanted into a gentleman who was in the same vicinity as we were located. Um, His liver went to a young lady from the Philadelphia area, and his other kidney went to a gentleman in um, a Philadelphia area hospital. Initially, our family was given very brief information on the recipients. And I understand that they do that so a recipient can't track back a donor family member or the donor family can't track the recipients. Um, one thing the Gift of Life does offer is bereavement counseling to donor families. I mean, there is a ton of emotion that's associated with the whole organ transplant or tissue transplant situation. And to be very honest, our family took advantage of the uh, bereavement counseling that was offered to us. You have to remember we had two other sons and our other sons, uh, one was 14, one was 17. So we needed, we needed bereavement counseling and it was provided to us. And when someone dies, I think there's a situation where you have that bereavement counselor available However, when someone dies and becomes an organ donor or a tissue donor, it's a separate situation, and it should be treated separately. So you have the situation of the sudden death, but then you have the situation of the organ donation. Now, and there were questions asked, well, do you think that these people that have received Jonathan's organs, are they going to start liking things that Jonathan liked? Well, I don't know how to answer that. So the bereavement counselors were great. They were absolutely great that we dealt with. Um, over time, it was important for me to write letters to each of the four recipients because I wanted them to know a little bit about their donor. We were not permitted to give names. We were not permitted to say um, where he lived. 
but we were able to give just very brief information. And at the time, it was a very long process to get those recipients to receive the letters or cards that we had sent. Everything would go through the transplant program. They had to be screened and read. Then the letters or cards went through to the hospital where the transplant occurred. Someone there had to read them and then pass them on. So to be very honest with you, three of the four recipients, um, my family and I became very familiar with them. And that was over a period of time. Um, The liver recipient was a young lady from the Philadelphia area. And my family and I have met her family. Um, The individual who received kidney pancreas and was transplanted at Hershey, he was from Lancaster County and got to meet him, got to meet his extended family. And has, we have spent some time with not only him, but the extended family as well. But I think the most amazing story is the gentleman who received Jonathan's heart. That man was, as I said earlier, Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. He had been a very healthy individual, and he had had um, a virus that attacked his heart. And he went to Temple just for some testing. And when he was at Temple, he was told he was not permitted to leave, that he was admitted. That man is still living today, 26 years after that transplant. Today actually marks the 26th anniversary of the day that he received his heart. We've met him. We've spent time with him. um, And it's been a great experience. I want to hear more about that one in particular. There was a recent newspaper story about this that I read before we got together today. We'll come back and, and talk about this some more. We're talking about giving life through organ and tissue donation This is the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. Today we're talking about giving life through organ and tissue donation. My guests today are. Dwendy Johnson of the Gift of Life Donor Program. You can find them at donors1.org or 800-366-6771. That's 366-6771. And also Cheryl Eschenauer of Hershey, who's telling a very compelling personal story of organ donation in her family. And Cheryl, before the break, you were talking about how you've you were not only there through the whole ordeal from getting the phone call that your son had had a bad accident on his bike to being at the hospital, staying bedside while the doctors did everything that they could do, and then having that conversation about organ and tissue donation. And you stayed there until you knew and learned that organs from your son were being transplanted. You eventually found out generally who these people were. Talk to me about what you mentioned right before the break, the the gentleman who received Jonathan's heart. Yes. Um, he is from northern Pennsylvania, Tioga County. Um, his name is Brett. And quite honestly, my family and I have met him. My sons, my daughters-in-law, and my grandchildren have all met him. Um, there was a 25th anniversary celebration Um, that my family and I were invited to attend. His wife had the surprise anniversary celebration for him at their home. So um, we drove the four and a half hours um, to northern Pennsylvania. We attended that um, celebration, met his extended family, met his friends. And it was a very, I think, calming and 
emotional experience for me, but it was a good experience because as I looked around and I saw the individuals that were there and I saw him, Brett looks, he's so healthy looking. He doesn't look sick. He doesn't look like he went through a life-saving transplant. He works full-time. He's very active. We're 26 years out, and he's doing very, very well. The program obviously works, and he's a true testament to that program. Yeah, and I, I read the, the the newspaper article about this, um, the whole backstory, but also the sort of reunion at this 20, I mean, the fact that they're celebrating 25 years. I mean, and he said, you know, yeah, I had to sign forms because they're, you know, they're opening me up. There's some risk involved that you're not going to make it out of the surgery, of course, with as with any surgery. But here he is 25 years later, 26 years later, however long. Now it's longer than that, of course. But you went to the 25th anniversary. The fact that they're celebrating it, he's surrounded by family, friends, co-workers, and you're there. That gift from Jonathan that you authorized didn't save one person. It saved all of those people. I mean, it just, it, that, all of the life that was extended there by that. I mean, was that a sense that you got when you were there? Well, I think that's very true. And, and not only that, but, you know, Jonathan, again, he was 12 years old. And I feel that in his 12 years of life, he has impacted so many people that you and I probably will never reach. Um, and one thing that I think is pretty amazing. Organ and tissue donation, in my opinion, is not something that we talk about. It's not dinner table conversation. But now my grandchildren understand this, at least the older ones. The younger ones, they don't. But my oldest grandchild um, at the time was 14, and she asked the question, can she call Brett Uncle Brett? And I asked her, why would you like to call him Uncle Brett? And she said, because he has a part of my Uncle Jonathan in him, so he's really my uncle. How can you say no to that? I said, absolutely, you can refer to him as Uncle Brett, provided that he gives you permission to do that. Right. And he has. And it's it's been, for me, it's been a very heartwarming experience. That's wonderful. We have never once, I mean, I can't stress this enough, we have never once regretted donating Jonathan's organs. Never once. And I'll turn to, to Dwendy Johnson from the Gift of Life donor program. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to top that as far as, um, you know, how do you... All of the people out there who might have some reservation, or maybe they've just never thought about it, as Cheryl was saying, it's just not top of mind for most people. There's there's other things they'd rather spend their time thinking about. But I know you, just like I, you know, in in an elder law practice, estate planning practice, you have un- undoubtedly heard the misunderstandings that people get hung up on, or maybe it's their excuse not to think about the real human beings involved in the in the donation and also in the being the recipient. What are some of the misunderstandings or myths or misconceptions that you've heard? Well, I think if we want to step back a little bit and really impact what an impact it is for donor families and what they're doing is giving that gift of life to someone that's in need. And Good we point. do and we do have well over a hundred thousand people in the United States that are waiting for a life saving organ. So it's really about educating and giving thanks to our heroes, our everyday heroes our donor families by giving those gifts to those people that are waiting and just kind of bringing it back closer nationwide, but locally in our region, we're looking at over 5,000 people and, and about 10% of them are under the age of, of 17 children that are in need. So really just thinking about it and, and those people on that list every day, there's about 17 people that will die waiting and just Thinking about it, learning about it is the most important thing. 
So there's an obvious benefit uh, when you when you learn about it that obviously that's 17 people who don't have to pass away because they're mm-hmm. waiting for a life-saving transplant. But I'm glad you brought it back and, and really put in context what Cheryl's story is about, which is the actual uh, giving of life that way is something that you know, she, you can tell from the way that she speaks about it that this is something that has enhanced her life. It's probably not the course she wanted or, or, or expected her life to go down, but there's a positive ending to this. And, and it, it just being the, the donor can, can yield its own unexpected blessings uh, other than the obvious blessing for the person who's receiving the donor donation and, and then able to live. But, you know, I'm glad you brought up that the, the, you know, the age of a lot of people one thing I run into, by the time somebody uh, starts to think about organ and donation, maybe you know they haven't done estate planning until they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or older, I run into people all the time who say, who would want my organs or tissue? You know, I'm old. You know, and, and I remember when I was working on the legislation years ago and Gift of Life was at the table, just being so smart and so compassionate about the real people involved. And I remember raising that question myself. I said, if I'm in my 40s and some 17-year-old kid out there needs a new liver and I, I have organ donor on my driver's license, if I pass away, do they really want my liver or do they want one with a little less mileage on it? I mean, how do you respond to that question? Yeah, exactly. So anyone could be an organ donor is how I respond to it. Depending on your circumstances of death, you know, you may be able to be an organ donor. If you can't be an organ donor, maybe you'd be a tissue donor, someone to help enhance someone's life through um, skin or bone or softness veins or even heart valves or corneas to give someone eyesight. So there are very many people that in, that are waiting for not only life-saving organs, but life-enhancing donations as well. And when you mentioned about older um, and and looking at your living will or your will, a living will is a great opportunity for us to um, have that conversation when someone's doing their living will. Talk to your family. Share your decision, whether it is or it isn't, but make sure that you have that conversation with your family. You and know, I emphasize that not just for the organ uh, and tissue donation piece, but these are people who are going to have to speak for you and better mm-hmm. that they know your even while you're alive, your quality of life decisions. Where's the point where we stop trying to extend life and we look at hospice or palliative care? And then we talk about organ and tissue donation. I would much rather those family members know about that before they're standing at the foot of your hospital bed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of the other misconceptions, either one of you, that you've heard about? Uh, because, you know, given this compelling story that Cheryl has shared, um, where how could somebody be on the fence or what are the things that you hear them say and how how would you respond to those? I know our, our one that we hear very frequently is if something happens to me and I'm in a hospital, the healthcare team finds out that I'm an organ donor. They're, they're going to try. They're going to stop trying to save. Okay. Me. Yes. And what's the answer to that? And just keep in mind that you are in there, and our number one priority for all healthcare is to do everything possible to help save your life. When those are all exhausted, then organ and tissue donation is the next step. Right. So it's not like. Um, I mean, that would be obviously a, an, an ethical conflict of interest on the mm-hmm. highest level for any healthcare professional. They go into that line of work to uh, to improve and save lives, not, not to sort of see if they can barter for parts. I mean, this is it really is, um, uh, you know, more a question of when have we gotten to the point where extending life 
is no longer feasible. But mm-hmm. up until that point, they are trying to save your life. That's In fact, it's different teams, the treating team and the organ procurement team. By definition, it has to be the same, you know, to avoid that conflict. Um, but we're going to come back in a moment and talk about some of the other logistics uh, through G- Gift of Life or other uh, other organ procurement agencies. How the, how does this work? What are some of the, the the considerations people should have? Of course, if you want to get more education about this, uh, we cover a lot of this in, in the estate planning webinar or w- workshop that I do. You go to keystoneelderlaw.com and use the workshops tab to get registered. We do those about once a week on one topic or another. We'll be back in a second on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, here on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, your host, Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. And before the break, uh, as we've been going through the details of what it's like to give life through organ donation or tissue donation and what it's like, you know, some window into what it's like to receive that life-saving gift. Uh, Dwendy Johnson from the Gift of Life donor program was was speaking about some of the holdups or misconceptions that people have about it. Um, and, and my guest, Cheryl Eschenauer, the mother of an organ donor, uh, was, was uh, speaking as well about some of the uh, experiences she had. And, and Cheryl, I think... Um, you know, you can you can offer some, I think, very poignant advice to to people who are on the fence. Especially one one thing I hear from clients at Keystone Elder Law is, uh, you know, it, it, funeral considerations come into it. So if they they want they they say, look, I'm generally okay with being an organ or tissue donor, but what does that mean for my funeral? If I have a, an open casket of viewing, uh, what does that do? I think your story goes to that a little bit. And it also goes to this is about something bigger. There's bereavement counseling. There's all kinds of feelings that go into this well beyond just some of those basic hangups. But but talk to me a little bit about that and what your experience was with uh, post-organ donation then, um, some of the experiences that you, that you had. Yes. Yeah, so as far as the funeral arrangements are concerned, someone who is an organ or tissue donor, they absolutely can have an open casket viewing and funeral service. Um, in our case, our immediate family viewed Jonathan, but my husband and I made the decision that for his actual service, we wanted to have the casket closed. And the reason we wanted to do that was, you know, we're talking about 12-year-old children and um, the accident occurred right before school would start up again in August. And we felt very strongly that we didn't want his friends remembering him as the boy laying there in the casket. We wanted them to remember him as a very active young man who loved to play baseball and swim and spend time with his friends and family. Um, So you can have an open casket funeral. As far as um, the surgical incision, Jonathan did have multiple organs removed from him, but the surgical incision was one incision, and it was basically from his breastbone down to his navel. And that surgical incision then was stitched up, And he just looked like someone who had an operation and the organs were removed out of and through one um, opening in his body, if you will. Um, His friends, I think once they got back into school and they started talking about him, there were a lot of questions that they had. And I was asked if I could come in to the school and, and answer some of these questions that the children had. And I did. 
And I did that along with uh, a friend who's an ER doc and also one of the nurses who I am very friendly with, um, who is a PICU nurse. And it was very open, and the kids asked questions, and they received their answers in a very simple manner in which they could understand. And a lot of those questions just sort of went to, I mean, the the you know, the, I mean, maybe how, how was he cut that sort of thing? How, what did this do to him? What, what did he go through? I mean, he was gone at that point, but yes. they wanted to know really a lot of the same questions that somebody who is alive and is thinking about being an organ or tissue donor might be asking. They're, they're thinking, well, what does that do to the body? Uh, what is the process? Can, you know, what, what impact maybe does that have on my family? And it sounds like that had no adverse impacts on you and in fact you were you were very comfortable explaining that to these school children that's correct and also there were a lot of questions as it pertained to jonathan's head injury he had a bicycle helmet on and that helmet was still attached to his head when the emergency personnel arrived the emergency staff had to remove that helmet there were a lot of children asking john had a helmet on if that helmet didn't save him why should i wear a helmet if i'm skateboarding or if i ride my bike so it was great that we had the ER doc there and we had the oh, picky sure. uh, nurse there because they explained head trauma. And again, in very simple terms, but they explained head trauma. And it's they related it as when we get in a car, we put a seatbelt on and we put the seatbelt on to try to protect us. And nine times out of 10, it will if we're in an accident. However, there may be a time when it does not protect us. And the same thing happens with a helmet on the head. Jonathan's Henry or Jonathan's injury, remember, was an internal closed head injury. You couldn't see that injury by looking at him from the outside. It was all inside his head. Yes. Dwendy Johnson from Gift of Life, I understand that that coming up uh, August 1st, there's a rather significant day in your world. So tell me about that a little bit. Absolutely. August 1st, um, which is just around the corner, is Pennsylvania's Donor Day. So what we're trying to do is to get the word out about the importance of organ and tissue donation across Pennsylvania, hoping to raise the designation up to 50% of Pennsylvanians register themselves to be an organ donor. And so we're just making it one day that people get together to talk about it, whether it's at your local business and we can provide toolkits and various other ways that we can um, give those businesses and those people to share with their employees and um, other people in the community. But we're helping to raise more awareness in the state of Pennsylvania. And the reason behind it is August is our eighth month, and one person can help save the lives of eight people. Ah, okay. So that's the meaning behind it. So really reson- resonating on that particular day to all of us come together to help save more lives and be registered as an organ donor. And I think, first of all, if businesses or if other people, organizations want to participate in this and raise the awareness, especially after hearing the story that Cheryl has told today, where how should they get in touch with you to participate? Yeah, very easy. They can um, just go to our website, and we do have it on our website at donors1.org, and just punch in the search bar uh, PA Donor Day. And- Cheryl, what would some of your goals be? I mean, beyond everything you've done ever since you lost Jonathan, but gave his gift of life to so many people, the not only the recipients, but all their families and friends, where, what would you, it, of all the things you've seen happen since then in the world of, of organ donation, because you've, you've stayed plugged into this, what would you like to see happen more than what you've seen before? 
quite honestly, I'd like to see this be a topic that is discussed um, in the high schools around the time that the children are receiving their learner's permit and their driver's license. I think it's unfortunate that, you know, whether it's in health class or whatever, these kids are taught about the dangers of drugs and alcohol and smoking, but we don't like to talk about death and dying. And, you know, the reality of it is we are all going to die at some point in time. And personally, I would like to see that topic of conversation um, expressed more in a high school than what I feel it currently is. What is going on at that level? Because that's a very good point. I mean, that's that's when they're that's when they're getting their driver's license. They have pen dots going to ask them a question when they get that, and they don't know how to answer it. Absolutely. So um, there is an organization in the state that is the Governor P. Casey Trust, and what we do is help spread the word and the awareness about organ and tissue donation across the across Pennsylvania. And one of the things that we have collaborated with with the Department of Education is to provide grants for high schools to come in and teach about organ and tissue donation. And then there also is a tool, educational toolkit that is available for schools that if they're interested in, in partaking with that. But I agree with, with Cheryl is that, you know, these kids are learning all about how to drive a car and how to park and all of that. When the last question before they get their driver before they get their picture is that question: Do they want to register to have organ donation on their driver's license? And this is all about education. Is I want them to be prepared that when they get there, they know that that question is going to be asked to them. And if they're under the age of eighteen, they need to have parent or guardian's permission. So just keeping in mind that. Um, anyone under the age of 18 will need to have parent or guardian permission for that. So the education is is primarily to the person uh, who will be getting that driver's license, but maybe mm-hmm. we need to do more to, to extend it to their parents as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure the parents are from their schools getting information that's being shared with the children. That seems to be a pretty common practice, but uh, I share your goal, and, and I, I tend not to uh, see people who are high school age in my office at Keystone mm-hmm. Elder Law, but I see their parents and grandparents, and this is very much a part of the conversation. Uh, of course, it's all about let's keep you alive longer. Let's have decision makers for you so you have the best life, but let's let's weave into that conversation. This is your decision. Each individual can make a decision here, and I think that this conversation is is so crucial to let them know what's riding on it. And it's it's maybe the unexpected benefit, Cheryl, that you've been uh, that you've been describing that the, the the impact on you as a person to be part of a donation that saves a life, but then saves a family and saves a friend group, and and it just goes on and on. And how many of those people at that twenty five year anniversary for Brett are probably now keenly aware when they go to do their driver's license renewal or their their estate plan of the impact of organ donation. Absolutely. And it's allowing not only Brett, but family members of Brett and friends of Brett to create additional memories with him. Yes. Right. So just the impact goes on and on. Dwendy Johnson of the Gift of Life Donor Program and Cheryl Eschenauer, thank you both for sharing the the information and the the really the why behind the information today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting us. We'll be back next week for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. Hope you join us then. You're listening to News Radio WHP 580.